As our children are sliding out, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 1. In the, in the Bibles we've provided there, it's page 1011. For some of you, maybe it's just clicking a button and turning your Bible on. Um, so James chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me pose a question for you to think about as we jump into the text. Did anyone face any trials this morning on the way to church? Five minutes ago. ago. We got a trial down here. My guess is that probably even this morning, some of us have even faced trials. Maybe your morning went something like this. You feel a tap on your shoulder at 5 a.m.? Accompanied with the words, Dad, I had a bad dream. Can I get in bed with you? Once your child hops into your bed, you realize that not only has your child had a bad dream, they have also wet the bed. Sigh. After helping them change clothes and removing the sheets, you hop back in the bed with your child and your spouse. The next two hours are filled with joy, feet kicking against your back, fights for the pillow, and complete unrest. I think some of you can relate to this. You haven't even woken up yet, and trials are coming left and right. By 7 a.m., everyone in the house is awake, and you can tell it's just a normal day. The kids are fighting and not listening. Your spouse is laughing at the commotion and providing little help, and you think to yourself, my kids are driving me crazy, my spouse makes me so angry, and then ringing in the background are the words of James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers. None of us, given the choice would plead to God for him to send trials your way. Did anybody go to bed last night in in, in your evening prayers crying out, God, I would love for you to send trials. Feel free to start at 5 a.m. this morning. Did, Did anybody just cry out to God to send trials? Look, trials are not our choice of operation. In fact, we think that we should do everything in our power to avoid trials. But as Tanner shared with us last week, trials are opportunities to grow and be like Christ. In fact, James says, without trials, that we would be immature, incomplete, and deficient Christians. So think about this. Trials are the heat in our lives. And the soil of trial can produce either fruit or thorns. What Tanner shared with you last week was what James was telling us is that when we face trials, that the fruit that we should be pursuing is that we would count it joy, that God would work his perseverance in us, he would produce character in us, that we would cry out for wisdom in the midst of trials. That is the fruit. So when trials come to produce fruit, is the soul of your heart responds that way. 
But this morning, when we turn to chapter 1, verse 13, James flips the coin. You see, trials also reveal thorns in our lives. Trials can also lead to temptation and sin. And so that's where we're going to look at today. Last week, trials and how we respond with fruit. Today, what happens when we see trials reveal sin and temptation? How do we overcome sin and temptation in the midst of trials? So grab your word. I'm going to be, begin reading James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. If you are going to resist and overcome temptation... James gives us three core truths that we must embrace. And the first one is this. Truth number one, God is not the source of your temptation. Look back at the text with me, verse 13. James says, let no one say when he's tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God tempts no one, and God cannot be tempted with evil, I want to show our, our statement on providence and our statement of faith at redemption. I want you to read this with me. As we think of the providence of God, as we look last week at trials and see how God is sovereign, follow this with me. Providence. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass. What do we mean by that? We mean that there's nothing that happens that is outside of God's providential and sovereign control. He is the king of the universe. But it says that he perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet do not miss this. So as not in any way to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent beings. God is completely sovereign, and yet He is not the author or approver of sin. There are two implications from our statement on providence and these verses here in the text. The first one is this, God cannot be tempted with sin because He is not susceptible to any such desire for evil. You guys get that? God cannot be tempted by sin. The second implication God allows us to be tested, but He never seeks to induce us to sin or destroy our faith. I don't know what temptation you may be facing today. 
But you may be tempted to think that your situation is from the hand of God. Now, God, God tests us, but God is not inducing you to sin or seeking to destroy your faith. You have to get this if you are going to wage war with sin. Second kind of subpoint I want to share with you is that God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Look at this text here with me, parallel in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In view of this, you can never say, this temptation is more than I can bear. Have you ever said that? Now, you may have felt that way, but the realities and the truth about God is he will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There's another thing you can't say. You can also never say there's no way out of this temptation. Go back to this verse here real quick. What did he say in 1 Corinthians 10? He said, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you may be in the middle of some of the most intense and hardest temptation that you've ever faced in life. But know this, guys, listen up here. God is for you. Did you hear those words? God is for you. He is not against you. If you are going to wage war against sin and temptation, you must believe that God is working in you and with you and for you for his perfect will. There is hope. God is faithful. He is sovereign. And he is on your side. Do you believe that today? In the midst of your trials and temptations, do you believe that God is for you. That is the foundation. If you are gonna wage war today and overcome sin and temptation, you've gotta know that God is not tempting you to sin. He is for you and he goes to battle with you. There's a second truth that you've gotta get also and it's this. Your own sinful desire is the source of temptation. God is not the source of temptation, your own sinful desire. Look back at the text with me. Verse 14, James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Where does James place the responsibility and the onus? On me. On you, on us, when each person is tempted, it is his own desire. It is not the desire of your spouse. It is not the desire of a parent or of a boss or of a coworker or of a classmate. It is your own desire. Desire must conceive to produce sin. So let me give you a few implications here. The first one is this. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. You guys get that? Temptation's not sin. 
And you've got to get this because you're going to be tempted for the rest of your life to live in the flesh. Flesh, we are going to face temptation. It's tempting to think that in the midst of temptation, that temptation itself is sin. It is not. What does the text say here? Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Desire must conceive to produce sin. Just because you experience temptation doesn't mean you're out of fellowship with God. It is how we respond to temptation that determines whether we sin or not. How do we know this? Well, let me show you a few parallel passages. Look here in Hebrews 2, speaking of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you catch that? Jesus faced temptation. Look at another one. Tanner's already read it for us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look, Jesus faced temptation. One of the very first things he did, go in Matthew 4, it says, after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Very beginning of his ministry. Look, temptation in and of itself it's not, is not sin. It's how we respond to temptation is what leads to sin or not. And so let me share this quote with you. Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. That's by Douglas Moo. Our, our maturity is not how many times we're tempted today. It's the frequency of how we succumb to temptation. So temptation is not sin. The second sub-point I want you to see here is that your sinful desire causes you to sin. Look, trials do not make you sin. Hear that again. Trials do not make you sin. If you respond sinfully to the trials God sends, it's because your hearts have chosen to do so. Now, James, in, in giving us this truth, gives us two analogies. And two images. The first image he gives us is the bait and hook. He says this in 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sin. Do we got any fishermen in here? And who are the fishermen? Joel's a fisherman. Eric. Any other fishermen in here? All right, Jim, I see you back there. Who's been fishing? Raise your hand. Anybody been fishing? Who, who wants to go fishing one day? Okay, guys, you, you can connect up with, with the fishermen here. You guys know how this works, right? You take the bait, and you put it on the hook, and what is the goal? You're trying to deceive this fish. You're trying to entice this fish to think, him, that what is on this hook is actually the real thing. And yet, as soon as that fish 
clamps down on it, the hook goes in the mouth, or whether it's a net or whatever, and the fish has been deceived. You see, it's the same way with sin. We're going to talk about that in a second. But the second imagery he gives us is this picture of conception and birth. In verse 15, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. What is we? It's, it's the picture of giving birth to a child, that, that there's conception, and then there's birth, and then this child grows, and when it's full grown, the result is death. How does desire conceive and give birth to sin? Like at one point, when you are tempted, that, that there's actually, it gives, it's conceived, and it gives birth to sin, and then sin grows fully and gives birth to death. James actually doesn't tell us here. But he assumes that is the active response of the person who's tempted. So when we're tempted and there is an active response, that is when sin is conceived, and then it gives birth and leads to death. Douglas Moo says this, if a person should welcome rather than resist that temptation, desire conceives. And if not turned away immediately, it produces sin. Do you guys hear that? If not turned away from immediately, it produces sin. So how does sin work? I want to just take in these two image, images. I want to draw some implications for us because if we're going to overcome and sin and temptation, we've got to know how sin works in our lives. And the first one is this, sin is crafty. Can you guys relate? I mean, just like the bait and the hook, sin is crafty. It is also deceitful. Sin lies to us. Sin promises us things that it cannot fulfill and complete. Oftentimes, sin questions the goodness of God. Sin's going to question you and say, hey, man, God has told you that you should not do this. Because when, when we're tempted, let's just be honest, it's the truth of the Word of God and God's will, and it's our own sinful desire, it's peer pressure from others, it's tempting from Satan, or whatever, but it's contrary to the will of God. You know the will of God. You know His truth. And so sin is going to deceive us and lie to us to say, hey, man, God's not good. And you know, God said you shouldn't do this. Man, God's withholding from you. Man, God's keeping you from some really good things. Have you guys heard the lie lately? Sin is also alluring. Look, we wouldn't be given into sin if, if it didn't promise some type of delight or fleeting pleasure. But it also betrays. When sin conceives, it gives birth. And what is the end? What is the groan? What is the maturity? It is death. Every single time sin betrays you, sin lies to you, it deceives you, it promises joy, it promises satisfaction, and every single time it ends in death. I love what Thomas Watson says. 
He says, sin first courts and then kills. Whoever sin kills, it betrays. Is sin courting you today? I mean, the best example that we have here is just to go back to Genesis 3, and it fleshes out everything that we've seen here. I mean, when Eve was tempted by Satan. I mean, just, just process with me. Just think through. Sin is deceitful. Sin is alluring. It's crafty. And it's betraying. Look what happens here. It says, so when the woman, speaking of Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, what happened there? What did God say? Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will die. God, all through Genesis 1 and 2, God is creating, and he's saying, it is good. God is creating, and he said, it is good. God creates mankind. He says, everything I've created, indeed, it's very good. You have this repeated phrase all through Genesis. It's good, it's good, it's good. You get to Genesis 2 with, the, with, with man, and God says, it is not good that man should be alone. And then he says, here's another thing that's not good. Do not eat of the tree. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is laying down what is good in life and what is not good. And what does Eve do here? The woman saw that the tree was good for food. She was deceived. It continues on. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Do you see the bait and hook here? It was alluring. How did Satan appeal to her? Because Satan tempted her and said, did God say you should eat of the tree? And she says, no, and, and, and Satan replies back, and what does Satan say? You won't die, right? Satan says, oh, God said you're going to die? No, you're not going to die. A lie! She was deceived, she was allured, and she was betrayed. It was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And what do we find out at the end of Genesis 3? Is that the curses have come upon them, and they've been kicked out of the garden. And eventually, they face death. Let me ask you today, where are you being deceived by sin? What lie are you believing that's going to give you pleasure and delight and satisfaction? Where are you saying today, God, you're a liar? Now, we don't, we don't like to think about sin that way. I mean, let's be honest. What's Eve doing here? It's a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She's saying, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I know better than you do what is best for me. How arrogant is that? She's speaking to the creator of the universe and saying, God, you don't know what will make me happy. And you know what? The fact is we do that every day. When sin conceives and gives birth, what happens is we are tempted, we are lured, we're deceived. And when, we, and when it conceives and gives birth to sin, what we say to God is, God, man, you've told me that I should be pure and that sex ought to be saved for the marriage bed, but you don't know what you're talking about, God. You're a liar. It's actually really good before marriage. God, I know you say that, man, I shouldn't live in drunkenness but you just don't know how good this stuff tastes. And it is good for me. God, I know you've said that, that I should not be angry. 
and that I should be patient and gentle. But God, you just don't know how good it is when I can raise my voice and yell and get what I want. Guys, how arrogant are we to challenge the goodness of God? So there's some important implications here that we've got to get. After this, in Genesis 3, God comes looking for Adam and Eve. And he confronts Adam first. And he says, Adam, did you eat of the tree? And what does Adam do? This woman that you gave me, she made me eat. So God goes to Eve. Eve, why did you eat? Who made you eat? What does she say? This serpent deceived me and I ate. I want you to just think about what goes on because we do the very same thing they do. Our tendency with sin is to point the finger and the blame at somebody else. We don't want to own sin. What does Adam do? Adam questions the goodness of God. This woman you gave me, God, this is your fault. But yet, what does James say? God does not tempt. But in essence, that's what James, that's what, that's what Adam's doing. God, this is your fault. If you wouldn't have given me this woman, then I wouldn't have eaten of the tree. He's questioning the goodness of God's provision. God, you're not a good God. Eve, throwing it off on the serpent. Here's what you got to get. What does James say? Is it anybody's responsibility besides yourself when you sin? No, each person, when he is lured away and enticed, falls into temptation because of his own desire. Guys, you need to hear this. God and our circumstances are not the reason we sin. When we say, my spouse makes me so angry, or will you pray for me? We're having marriage problems. Oh me, no, I'm fine. I just got to deal with these marriage problems. Or when we say, man, my kids are driving me crazy. Or, man, you probably said this this week, this traffic makes me nuts. Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp say this, trials do not cause us to be what we have not been. Rather, they reveal what we have been all along. The harvest the trial produces is the result of the roots already in our hearts. Look, our circumstances don't allow us to excuse sin. Look, my spouse, when I say my spouse makes me so angry, look, your spouse is not your biggest problem. What would James say? You are. If you get angry with your spouse, it's because of something that's going on in here. Look, your spouse can't make you. She's not jumping inside of you and making you act a certain way. You are responding that way because of your own desire. In the same way, my marriage is not my biggest problem. Look, how can a marriage be a problem? Right? As if, no, no, I'm fine. It's just my marriage. Well, what do you mean by that? No, the reason there are marriage problems is you have a man and you have a woman and they have sinful desires. And so my marriage isn't my biggest problem. I am. My kids do not drive me crazy. How can my kids drive me crazy? Look, my kids are just the heat in my life. 
You turn the heat up, and what reveals is what's in my heart. So the reason I'm acting the way I am with my kids is because my kids are revealing this sin that is in my heart. And look, traffic can't make you nuts. Well, maybe sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. Traffic is not your biggest problem. If you're sitting in traffic and you see, catch yourself dropping a, cho- a few choice words and giving hand signals to the person that's driving beside you, or maybe it's just beeping the horn. Like, I know in Boston, like, it's cool. You drive with one hand here and one hand here. Like, that's how we roll. But look, there sometimes I'm searching my own heart when I'm giving that beep. It's not because I'm giving a gentle encouragement. It's because there are desires that are screaming inside of me that are saying, move! Look up, get off your phone. And what are the desires? I have somewhere I want to be and you're hindering me from my plans. It's myself. What circumstances in your life right now are you excusing your own sin? Guys, don't miss this. You need to get this. Who were you pointing the finger at? Is it it your job? Is it your classmates? Is it your professor? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? What is it? And I want you to ask this. You need to ask this question. Why are you responding the way you are? That's the bigger question. Because here's the deal, guys. James doesn't say, hey, just hang hang in there for a little bit longer. The trials and temptation will will be gone. No. Look, you may may move from one trial and there's just going to be another one. And you may may move from gaining obedience in one temptation and there's just going to be a new one. And with different stages of life come different temptations. A single person to a married person to a married person with kids to a retired person. They all face temptation. It's just different seasons of life. So there's a, there's a luring thing to think, well, if I can just move to the next stage in life, well, then I'll be done with this temptation. No. There's a third truth that's really good news that we're going to wrap up with, and it's this. God is the giver of new birth. And look here with me in verse 16. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of His creatures. So first of all, I want to ask this. What, can, what does this teach us about God? And then how can this help me in overcoming sin and temptation? And this isn't disconnected with what we've just talked about. James started with God does not tempt, and now he's coming back and around, and he says, but this is what God does do. So God doesn't tempt with sin, but God does give new life. So the first of all, we see God is the father of lights. God created the great lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. Not only is God powerful, but he will continually care as the father of lights for his creation. Second, God does not change. We see a reference here. This, he says here that uh, uh, he's the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. He's talking about the, the orderly or periodic movements of the sun 
or the moon or the stars. They're always shifting. They're changing. But you know what? God doesn't change. The heavens may change, but God doesn't. He is a rock. He is a fortress. But the third thing we see about God is that God is the giver of all good things. Every perfect gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Guys, if you will just believe this today, it will radically transform the way you view sin. Because at the root of a lot of our sin is this question, is God good? And James says, every good and every perfect gift is from God. He is a good father. You can believe him. You can trust him. But preeminently, the reason we know God is good is because he gives new birth. So you've got this imagery here. Sin conceives and gives birth to what becomes death. But God, out of his own will, he desires by the word of truth, the gospel, to give birth in your heart and give you new life. So where sin brings death, God from the beginning has been working redemption to bring about new life. So you're here today and you're saying, John, you're right. I'm that person, I'm living in sin, I'm living in temptation, I love it, I'm deceived, I'm allured, it's been crafty in my life. The hope here is that if you will turn to God today and confess your sin, and will you do three things with me? Will you suspect yourself today? Will you inspect yourself today? And will you acknowledge circumstances don't excuse my sin? If you can get to that point and turn to God and say, God, I've suspected myself. I've inspected myself. I see the circumstances in my life and they're revealing that I've got a wicked heart. If you'll cry out to him with repentance and faith by the word of truth, believing this good news in the gospel that Jesus was tempted yet without sin, that he laid down his perfect life, that he died to pay the penalty for every single one of your sins, and he rose from the dead, he can also give new life to you. So that when you believe the gospel, God gives you his spirit, and Ephesians says that you who were dead have now been made alive. By grace, you've been saved. So the point of the sermon today is this. You can overcome sin and temptation and trials by living in light of the new life that God gives. I'm going to wrap up in these last two minutes by asking this. How then can you practically overcome sin and temptation? The first truth is this, is come to Christ. Look, until you come to Christ, you cannot wage war with sin Galatians 5, 24 says this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Until your flesh is crucified, you are not free to worship God as you should. But then I want to use 2 Timothy 2, 22 to kind of give you three other truths. So he says this, so flee youthful passions, these desires, these passions, flee and pursue righteousness, faith, and love along with those who call upon God from a pure heart. So the second truth is this. Flee. 
Flee sin and temptation. Come to Christ. And then for believers, those who have come to Christ, the pattern in our life is that we flee temptation and you do it in the first five seconds. Guys, if you let temptation linger beyond the first five seconds, I guarantee you every single time it'll conceive and give birth to sin. So what do you do? In the first two seconds, you're crying out, no, this is a lie, this is deception, and you're saying, God, save me, help me, lead me, fill me, in the first five seconds. Guys, the battle with sin is done in the mind. And so you flee, you cry out to God. We may say it this way, you put off sin, and you put on the righteousness of Christ. Let me go into the third one. We flee sin and temptation. The third one is we pursue righteousness. You can't just say, I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to turn from sin. You've got you've to replace it. So you flee sin, you pursue righteousness. You put off the, the, the flesh, and you put on the things of the Spirit. One verse here, Romans 8, 5 through 6, says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The battle for sin is in the mind. So get this. Since we know that sin is crafty, it is alluring, and it is deceiving, you must set your mind on that which is truth. So this past week, in your battle with temptation, what role did the Word of God play in helping you battle the lies of Satan and believe the truth of the Word of God? And then finally, embrace community. Flee, pursue, Second Timothy said, along with. Guys, we don't do this in isolation. And so you, you grab somebody today and say, this is my battle with sin. This is my temptation. This is why we have community groups that they're not meeting as regularly through the summer. It's so that we can have brothers and sisters that we say, look, I am battling sin. Will you walk this with me? Will you challenge me? Will you pray for me? So I conclude with this. Each morning that greets me is full of hope, not because I am successful at what I'm doing or because that people near me appreciate me or because circumstances are easy, but because God is and he is my father. To look at the morning any other way is to be a lie. To live in hope is to live in truth. To live in the truth is to bring him glory and to bring God glory. My daily living is the highest form of worship. This is from Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp, will you believe this? There is hope. Come to Christ. Flee, pursue, and embrace community. God, we thank you for your word. God, as we pray right now, we just, we just cry out and ask you to search our hearts. God, I know that there are people here today that are battling sin that are believing the lies of their flesh, that are believing the lies of Satan. Of Satan. God, I know that even for many of them, to come out of the sin they're in requires great humility because maybe they've even been living a lie in front of other people. God, I pray you would grant grace today to foster repentance. God, repentance, first of all, among those who don't have Christ. God, if there are people here today 
that, that don't know you, that have not been, that have not crucified the flesh. God, I pray even right now they would cry out to you, Lord, save me, fill me, forgive me. But for believers that are here today, God, I pray that there would be a fresh awakening of your holiness and repentance of sin. God, we pray even this week that you would renew our minds to think rightly about sin and about this world and about temptation and our trials. God, I pray this week would be a, a week that we, in the heat of our life, produce fruit that joy and wisdom and godly character and Christ's likeness is formed in us and not sin. So God, we cry out to you and beg you to move. Use us for your namesake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.